You are Locked On AFL, your daily AFL podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to Locked On AFL. I'm your host, Kane Pittman. Particularly with a pathetic effort from Pitt. I mean, it was the most disgraceful display I've ever seen from a big film. That's pretty hard on an individual, but he's going to have to live with that. And alongside me, as always, Josh Lloyd. Lloyd is Lloyd. Lloyd to Lloyd. 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 Kane, is the rumour true that North Melbourne have offered you a big dollar six-year deal that you will ultimately reject and they'll be left with nothing? I used to um, actually play, uh, and just, you know, my very highly decorated local footy career. At, uh, as I like to describe it, the lowest uh, the lowest standard of local footy in Geelong, I uh, played halfback. So uh, there's a chance that North Melbourne would offer me uh, a contract. They seem to dip in with everyone. But of course, I think you're talking about Zach Williams. I am talking. I could be talking about Zach Williams. I could be talking about yeah, Josh Kelly. I could be talking about Dustin Martin. I could be talking about every single player that apparently comes onto the market. North Melbourne's offering them a contract, and then they end up with Jared Pollock and then want to get rid of him after two years. This is really bizarre. This is absolutely bizarre. And now Zach Williams is a really good player. Like, there's no doubt about that. But but why? My first my first question when I read that article, I saw that they were potentially offering him a six year deal. I was just like, why? Why are you doing this, North Melbourne? You're not even close. Like, I can't even see with the way your list is right now that you're going to play finals anytime soon. Let alone be offering a guy like this major money. Obviously, they paid Jared Pollack huge dollars. He was playing in a you know, relatively successful Port Adelaide team at the time. Jasper Pittard also they took from that same team. They've both been bad, and North Melbourne have been terrible. And we've spoke all year about the guys that they targeted. And and sure, they tried to get some more high-profile players as well, but it, it's all failed. And we talk about Goldstein, we talk about Higgins, how they should have just ditched them last year and got some value while they could. Why would you even do this? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it looks like Williams is good. He's 26 years of age. He's played 100 games. He's out of contract at the end of the year. That all makes sense for a team that, Wants to, I tell you what makes sense for a team like the Gold Coast Suns who want to push into that next level, getting another just good, really, really good player to add to that group. Yeah, that sort of level. Maybe it's a team, maybe it's Melbourne we talked about, but it's not a team like North Melbourne who's got nothing going forward for the future here and who's looking to actually jettison assets to bring more in rather than you're spending up a chunk of salary cap money for a guy that by the time you're good, he's maybe going to be 29, 28, perhaps, uh, probably 29. That's three years' time. Um, I don't get it. They just throw their name out there, and it's obviously getting leaked. Is it getting leaked just so people go, well, North Melbourne's aggressive. North Melbourne, that, that must be the place to go to. They've got the money that they want to throw it around everywhere because it happens all the time. They are the name that is linked every single time, and players go and meet with them, and they just go, nah, we're good. It's, it's, I wouldn't say it's embarrassing, but it's getting a little bit... It's getting a little bit strange, their approach to building lists and getting uh, information leaked out there. I don't think there's any players that are buying that North Melbourne is the place to be <laughs> next year, that's for sure. But the point you make is important that, yes, and this is why it makes a little sense to me, trying to acquire a 26-year-old, uh, you're right. Your window, when you think you're going to be able to contend again, he's going to be old. So it's just not the the age bracket that it should be trying to attract. And that's why, yeah, they made a huge mistake with Higgins, Goldstein, these guys uh, last year because they need to get draft assets, they need to get younger players, and they need to pick. They need to try and pick the guys from the other teams that are 
20, 21, 22, played you know, 30 to 40 games, sort of on the fringe. Maybe they're in there and a team would be willing to pass them up for these veteran players. That's what they need to be doing, not signing 26-year-old free agents. And the other team that's been rumored to be in the, in the Zach Williams market that makes lots of sense is Carlton. Because Carlton already has the young brigade there. They've already got the young nucleus that they don't need to attract more young talent. They do need to get some of these guys in the middle bracket because when you look at Carlton, they're either super young or they're old. And so getting a Zach Williams in there, Carlton's window is in the next four or five years. Like they, they could be potentially contending for a flag in the next four or five years. We'll see how these young guys develop, but they've got enough young players that that's where they're going to be. Paddy Cripps is in that window. He's 25. So, yeah, Zach Williams makes plenty of sense for Carlton. And also just purely from the fact that, you know, you look at a guy like Kate Simpson, uh, how much has he got left? And so uh, they're going to need a replacement there. I thought he had there. nothing left two years ago, but he's still going. Yeah, he's still going. And, and, and you know, because Simpson's been so important, I think, for Carlton just from that veteran perspective. But also attacking, that attacking defender. But, but he's lost a step this year, understandably. So Zach Williams would be a huge addition for them with someone like Sam Doherty. So uh, Carlton makes plenty of sense. North Melbourne makes zero sense. Uh, one other bit of news on uh, GWS, of course, Zach Williams from GWS. Phil Davis is out for the season with bone bruise in his knee, so that's not good for their hopes of making the finals or making any noise there. Um, one other bit of news before we talk about what we mainly wanted to talk about in this first segment, and that is the news that Matthew Cruiser has retired. He was the number one pick in the 2007 draft. He is 31 years of age. He hasn't even managed 200 games for consistent injuries. Injured in round one this year and won't be coming back, so we wish... Cruiser, all the best. And of course, injuries have not ruined his career because he still played over 150 games, almost 200 games, and was an impactful player when he's out there. But they definitely quelled the impact that he probably would have had if things had have, uh, remained healthy for him. Oh, yeah. I mean, this guy would have been a gun if he could have stayed healthy. There's no doubt about that. He's goal kicker as well. Takes good grabs. He was always dangerous as, as a ruckman and almost that, that fourth midfield, fifth midfielder or uh, as, a, as a tall forward. He could do it all. Unfortunately... You always watched him and just waited for him to get injured again. And he had, obviously, tons of leg issues, whether it was foot, ankle, knee. Uh, just could never stay healthy. And it did feel like when he went down in round one, which um, feels like forever ago, early in that game against Richmond, you were just like, how, how much is, how much guy can this guy handle? How much more can he possibly take? And unfortunately, it looks like he's got to the end. Interesting. And this, this is the frustrating thing, I guess, for Carlton fans. 189 games, only 78 wins in that stretch. He's been through... A pretty rough time with Carlton. But again, and, and I always said this to my, my friends that, that are Carlton supporters, I, I said the whole time, I mean, he made his debut back in 2008. We're in 2020 now. Carlton stuck with this guy far longer than, than they should have. And, and respect to Carlton for you know, understanding how important he would have been for this team. But there was multiple stretches through his career where the writing was on the wall. It felt like from an outsider that this guy's just not going to be able to stay healthy. But there would have been teams that would have absolutely taken the bait and taken him at a, at a high price. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a tale. It's a tale that's, that's a familiar one. We see this around the league a lot. But sometimes, even with former number one picks and guys that can be so important, you've got to see the writing on the wall. And I, I probably just think, if anything, Carlton maybe, maybe should have recouped something from him if they could. But it's sad. It's sad. He, he's a great player. Let's talk about what you know, what we mainly wanted to talk about here, and that, that's there's the news coming out of Gold Coast that Connor Butterick has signed a contract extension. We've talked about Noah Anderson and Matt Rao signing, and that was always the concern with Gold Coast. They got all these young guys. Oh, yeah, but in two years they're going to be back playing for Carlton or playing for Adelaide or back in West Coast. But these guys seem to be trying to build something together, 
And it's working at this point because these guys are all signing on. We've seen the big steps forward that they have uh, they've taken this season. So that's great for Suns as a, as a team and for Suns fans and keeping these young guys around. But this, I think, just you know, pushes it into a different direction of what our discussion is. And that's talking about the rising star. Yesterday, we talked about the 22 under 22. But we're talking about the rising star award for this year, which I think is a somewhat flawed award at times. I don't I don't like the nomination um, aspect of it necessarily because, you know, Isaac Quainer hasn't been nominated for it this year, even though he's eligible, which seems wild to me considering how much we've talked about how good he's been this year. Um, but who are you Who are you looking now? Of course, Matt Rowell would have run away with it, I think, if he had to have stayed healthy, but he didn't. So who do you think is the, the most deserving recipient of this Rising Star Award? Well, I think it's a great crop of young players, but... I'm just not sure that there's anyone that really stands out outside of Caleb Sarong from Frio because I think a bunch of these guys have been really good at times and I think it's very clear that there's going to be probably 10-plus players from this group that are going to play 150, 200 games and be real impact players in the league. But Sarong already, for my, for mine, is the guy that has a definitive critical role in what Fremantle's been trying to do. We spoke about the Dockers a lot. We spoke about their defensive style, but then their ability inside and the, and the fact that their, their contested footy and their midfield uh, wins are starting to come from the young crop rather than Mundy and rather than Fife, who both have had good seasons, but whether it's Sarong, whether it's Chera, these guys from mine uh, just stand out. And, they, and when you watch a Fremantle game, much like Matty Rowell with Gold Coast, and I, I agree, he probably would have won it if he had stayed healthy, but Rao, in the three games that he played, you were watching the Gold Coast and you were expecting Rao to be the guy. Sarong is already one of those players for mine. And, and he's probably the only guy in this crop that is in that category for mine, uh, obviously, taking Rao out. Yeah, look, I do think it probably is. So he's in the top two. I am giving a little bit more stock to Noah Anderson. I've been really impressed with what he does, has done. He's leading the all-rising stars in total disposals in uh, in inside 50s. He's got the best uh, super coach score, which, again, isn't the most the, the most reliable indicator, but it's pretty good because it takes into account a lot of different things. He's second in clearances behind Sarong. Um, yeah, first in contested possessions in this group of rising stars as well. So I think Noah Anderson's got to be right up there. I don't know if I would... I would say that Sarong's best games have been better than Anderson's best games. Yeah. But... Maybe we, consistency. Yeah. Look, Anderson's been doing it all season. Like, Sarong started off slowly, and we talked about he had that, you know, strong game, I think it was, against... Oh, I can't remember exactly who it was against. Uh, St. Kilda, when they had that big comeback, and he had that really strong fourth quarter, and then, you know, turned it up against Geelong when he played on, on Dangerfield, and then really ramped it up from there. But the first six or seven weeks of the season, I don't think he didn't even play the first few rounds. So, he, he took a little bit of time to get going. So I guess it depends on do you want to look at yeah, the peak value or do you want to look at you know, what the guy's been doing all season and that's sort of where Anderson gets that edge. But it probably is Sarong. But I think to me, those are the two guys who clearly sit above everyone else. Then you've got guys like uh, King, Ben King, Max King, uh, Rankin maybe. I still think Quainer is, is one of the best players in this group, even though he, again, he hasn't been nominated. But that's probably that group that you're looking at as a top five or six. Yeah, I love Quainor. You know, you've heard me speak about him before. I think that he completely changes the look of the Collingwood team. So, and also, you know, give him the award for not only getting his leg completely split open and coming back two weeks later and just about being best on ground. By the way, that's tough as anything. But Rankin's an interesting one, and we can we can sort of cross this into 
um, last night's game. Although, actually, I do have one more question about the tall forwards I want to ask you. But what have you seen from Isaac Rankin? Interestingly enough, he, I mean, he is getting 12 disposals per game at the moment. Uh, he hasn't translated into being a huge goal kicker. But again, we always have to just realize this. The guy's played, what, eight games, nine games, something like that. So uh, you just have to have a bit more patience, particularly for a small forward like him where his opportunities around goal are often going to be difficult. He's proven to be a player that can make something out of nothing. Um, but, you know, you're also, I think with that type of player, you're going to see nights where he's just, he's not going to have a great impact. We talked about Rankin when he started and how exciting it was to see him play, but we also said, man, the media is going real hard on him. And every David time... King last night was destroying him. Well, this this is the thing. That's what I want to get to because they were taught every time he got the ball, look at that magic Rankin, fantastic. Oh, he's so good. He's dangerous. Gary Lyon coming out, I'd take him number one overall. I'm pretty sure he said in that draft or number two, whatever. Now, the headline today, has Isaac Rankin got ahead of himself? Like, yeah. Has he got ahead of himself or did you guys get ahead of himself or get get ahead of him and start pumping the absolute shit out of what he was doing every time he touched it and expecting magic every time and, and just great performances consistently like literally no player can really do at that level ever in the history of the game and you're expecting it from a bloke who's played two games and now it's like oh, maybe he's a little bit arrogant maybe he's getting a little you you did that you guys did that to him and we yeah. had to we had to and I don't did he ever come out and say man I'm the best player ever did he come out and say that I don't think so it was them that came out and gave him that sort of well he's he's the guy now he's played one game but nah, he's absolutely the guy we want to take number one in this draft and now the the I don't know it's it's wild to me yeah, I, I did. I felt a bit bad for him last night watching the game and the sort of commentary around his game. Um, there's there's some players that, and I and I thought Brad Johnson was sort of pointing this out, but I, I think there is some players where you just have to take some, you have to take some bad with the good, and you don't want to change the player uh, because there might be one or two instances during the game where he frustrates a little bit. I, I just don't think you want to change that. And also, you have to understand that, like I said, the guys played fewer than 10 games of AFL footy. So sometimes there's going to be mistakes that you might adjudicate them as being arrogant or being smart-ass moves when the reality is maybe the kid's just getting adjusted to AFL footy. And there was one in particular, and for those that watch the game, you will you will recognize this, but, but Rankin got the ball. It was just at, at the point of the center square and his attacking end. So he was facing uh, the wrong way. He was facing his back line. And he had a player streaming through on his right. He could have given a quick dish, and he definitely made eye contact with the player. And maybe he could have handballed it to him. But at the same time, he understood that there was players behind him. And perhaps, and I thought this was my initial take, and that's why I was so surprised that this particular player got ripped so much by the announcers, was that I thought that he made a read in his mind that if he made the quick dish there, he was going to be selling that player into trouble. It wasn't going to be a good entry. So he actually he looked off that guy, turned to his left, to uh, central, saw a guy streaming through and just delivered a bad handball. And, and it was a bad handball. It was a skill error. There's no doubt about that. He set that guy up. He didn't give him a chance to run on. But, I, I, you know, I mean, we all see the game differently. But to me, I thought that was a smart football play. I thought he made the right decision. And, you know, it was just strange to me that it seems that we're just picking on this guy too much and trying to pick out his faults. And it's kind of frustrating. I, I just want to see this guy play. It's it's definitely frustrating, and this again. Gary Lyons had this guy at number two in a redraft after one game, and now he's saying that maybe he's got ahead of himself. Like we just need to calm down. But that does take us into that game from last night because we said that the Q clashes had been close in the past, unexpectedly close. This one wasn't. 
particularly Brisbane wins 88 to 43, a game that they really should have won and they did win and they needed to win. And now they sit equal top just behind Port Adelaide by percentage. And that gives them a real boost in being able to feel pretty confident about securing that top four spot come the end of the season. So was there anything else to get out of this hedge? I think uh, our boy Jack Payne went. Yeah, I thought he was pretty good. Again, I didn't think that this was the game that was going to challenge him a lot. I spoke about that on yesterday's show. I, I think the real challenge for him will be uh, yeah, moving forward. It's certainly first week of the finals. There's no doubt about that. But look, Brisbane had to win this game. We spoke about the importance of them getting into the top four. The fact that they kicked 13 goals, 10, I think was a good size, a good sign. Eric Kipwood was, was fantastic. He was fantastic in this game. He was kicking relatively well. He's still going to feel a little bit shaky about him when it comes to the finals and the pressure there. But I, I think in general, he looked confident. Uh, he was taking plenty of marks. The 10 marks, I think they mentioned, was a, a equal PB for him. So he had a huge influence in the game. I think the big concern for uh, Brisbane, no doubt, is, is the injuries. Yeah. And you just hope that they don't start to pile up. So Jared Berry, clearly a crucial player for this team, clearance player, hard as nails, hard as nails, this guy. He's turned into a, a legitimately great player for this team. Uh, he went down with a shoulder. Lincoln McCarthy, by the way, this corky, like, holy shit. Uh, I was watching this, and I was laughing, but I felt bad for laughing. Archie Smith, just with full speed and full force, his big-ass knee directly into middle into the middle of McCarthy's quad. McCarthy got out there and was able to sort of hobble around for the rest of the game and sort of keep it warm, I guess. But I, I didn't even want to think about how he's feeling today. Oh, yeah, we all know how a corky feels the next day. It's it's going to be pretty rough for him to, to try and stretch that leg out. But, yeah, those injuries are, are absolutely a, can, uh, a concern for for um, Brisbane now after that. After the injury to, to Andrews, of course, you got Stasevich, who was out of this game straight away pretty much, and then uh, Berry. And that's not what you want. They don't have a particularly tough matchup next week. They've got Sydney, so yeah, that helps them. Um, yeah, they should still be able to get the victory there, although Sydney's been quite good in some of their games, but they should be able to do that with yeah, a bunch of really good players still in the team. But they need these guys back uh, for the finals, and they need to be able to yeah, have their best team out there, of course, without uh, without Andrews at this stage. But it was important for them to to get that victory, and uh, and get it in such convincing manner, despite those despite those injuries. So that's what good teams need to do, and they did that, and that's uh, that's exactly what the Brisbane fans would have been hoping. Outside of the uh, outside of the injury concerns, which uh, were never good. Did you see anything from Gold Coast, which was um, which was interesting in this game? Uh, they looked like they're they're looking for the end of the season. To yeah. be honest, I, I thought that. Um, again, I thought this was a game where they had enough of the footy. You know, like I thought that they were competitive, and that's why I'm surprised to look at the turnovers. The turnovers for this game ended up dead square at 73. It felt, without looking at the stats, just purely by the eye test, it felt that the Gold Coast just weren't able to uh, keep the ball in possession. It felt like they turned it over in dangerous spots all night long. It felt like their disposal efficiency should be a lot lower than what it was. They were at 65%, which is well below their season average. The the But the Lions were only at 68%. So it felt like that discrepancy should have been a lot higher. But uh, they did look a little bit tired. I mean, I, I know that they have, you know, Hugh Greenwood in there and David Swallow. And they've got some veteran players that have been around a long time. So maybe, you know, fatigue factor shouldn't be something that you should give them credit for. But they were, they were smashed into clearances. And we spoke about Jared Berry being out for the Lions, but but they're a clinical team in the middle, aren't they? I mean, they are. They are. They, they've just got great depth. Jared Lyons had another seven clearances in this game. Lockie Neal had six. 
Uh, Zorko was on fire up forward. McCluggage, who I spoke about yesterday, had him in my top five from the 22 under 22. He was sensational with 28 disposals. For me, uh, just out-muscled a little bit and, and certainly outclassed. The, the, the Gold Coast just... They looked tired. They, they failed in their execution last night, I thought. Even though they had plenty of the footy, they gave themselves opportunities. You mentioned something interesting. You talked about turnovers in this game as a stat, and this just doesn't really have anything to do with this game in particular. But I think we need to do a better job with turnovers as a number because you look at turnovers and obviously the, the flip side of that is intercepts, right? That's obviously creating a turnover. And nearly every team, with the exception of North Melbourne, is almost dead even in how many times they turn the ball over versus how many times they intercept the ball. And it's wild. Now, North Melbourne has the biggest differential between those two numbers, and it's 62 turnovers a game versus 56 intercepts a game. So it's six. That's the biggest difference. The next highest is four, and there's barely another team that's with it, like has a difference of two. Every other team, we took Melbourne, oh, they butcher the ball. They turn it over 63.7 and intercept it 63.4. So it actually means nothing. I think it's more important where these intercepts and turnovers occur versus the volume of them. And it's something that's been in my head all season, but there's just no no differential between how these teams go. Look, Geelong only turns it over 53 times. Melbourne at the top at, at 64. But Geelong also only yeah, intercepts at 54 a game. So it's a lot of game pace is involved in that and game style and, and slowing the ball down and speeding it up. So it is a, a really weird uh, phenomenon that basically teams turn it over as much as they get the ball back from the other team almost almost exclusively. Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess this is the problem with, with trying to analyze the AFL from the stats that were provided. I mean, you <laughs> the only ones that have those numbers that can give you more detail to that is champion data and it's all locked up. And, and that's the frustrating thing that you don't have a lot to go on. But there's no doubt about it, you're right. I mean, also the field position of those turnovers is critical. Yeah, there's positions where if you turn the ball over and, and if it is a, a long kick into the 450 or, or even, you know, some sort of pass that might be frustrating, you want to work on that finishing touch. But if you turn over the ball heading inside 50 and you have your structure set up behind you, then that's kind of okay because we're seeing that the the uh, territory game, the positional game is, is such an important part in footy these days. And those teams that can't lock in the ball in their forward half, generally uh, the teams that are going to struggle and they're going to give up scores. So it's a, it's a good point you make. Um, I, I just even it, it just felt like watching that game through the eye test that uh, the Gold Coast skills and their execution was a lot lower than than Brisbane, even though those very basic stats um, necessarily don't indicate that. Yeah, turnover stats don't mean anything. It's it's more about you know what's happening in terms of disposal efficiency and where those are occurring. I think we need things like you know, scores off turnovers or inside 50s directly resulting. You know, we've got we have score launches and score involvements. How they can you know, base those uh, base those things in terms of you know, unbroken change. And I think chains. We think we need something in terms of inside 50s off turnovers or you know, scoring shots or scoring attempts or shots on goal from turnovers is going to be a more reliable indicator. But I don't have the power to access that data because of course <laughs> the AFL doesn't want the game or discussion of the game to grow because. Why, why would you? Why would you want that sort of stuff? Anyway, there is a game tonight, and it is, Kane, a really, really um, important one. It is actually a massive game in the scope of the rest of this season. Um, St. Kilda and West Coast. This game can determine a lot. St. Kilda wins this one. They feel pretty confident about you know, making it and being locked in the finals. They lose this one, and their position becomes 
a lot a lot tougher. While West Coast, if they don't win this one, then their shot at the top eight, uh, top four is pretty much cooked, even though it's already on life support at the moment. Both teams need to win this one with massive finals implications. Yeah, no doubt. West Coast, uh, if they win this game, they're still relying on some results to get into the top four, which is kind of hard to believe. But uh, if they lose, they pretty much uh, write themselves off. Again, you know, there might be a miracle. They might be able to sneak in there. But it's critical for the Eagles to get back in some form. Obviously, they lost to your mob last week in a game that was really disappointing. And they were really dominated, to be honest. Now, the injuries aren't going to aren't going to help this team. Now, Nick Natanui comes back into the side. So does Shannon Hearn, Will Schofield. So they get some experience back. Hamish Brayshaw looks like he's going to make uh, his debut. Just another Brayshaw in the league uh, alongside the Frio and Melbourne versions. But more injuries. Dom Sheed is out. Jack Redden is out. Lewis Jetta is out. He's come back into the team the last few weeks. Mark Hutchins also injured. So, I mean, this is some this is some serious experience from this team that is going out. West Coast do look pretty vulnerable at the moment. Yeah, look, Redden was probably their best player last Sunday night, and he's out for the rest of the season. Jetta and Hutchings went out early. Um, Sheed, of course, one of their best finishers, not there. And again, you look at the St. Kilda side, Membry and King and Hind all come in, and that's like some strong ins for them as well. Now, Nat Nui and Hearn coming in. Uh, a strong for West Coast, but they just continue to lose players. I reckon this is going to be played. It's not going to be quite game of the year, Kane, but it's going to be played at, at a pretty high tempo, pretty frenetic, and a lot of pressure involved just because of the stakes for both teams. And they both know what, what the stakes are here. A loss for either of them puts them in jeopardy of achieving their goals. That is the finals with the top four. And um, I don't really know which, which way I'm leaning at this point. I, I saw West Coast last week really struggle for three quarters. Not really struggle, they were horrible for three quarters. St. Kilda's had some real significant ups and downs. Um, yeah, look, if you had have told me how to pick this game four weeks ago, I said St. Kilda's got no chance. But now I'm a little bit more a little bit more 50-50 on it. Interestingly, Jake Carlisle still can't get back into this St. Kilda team with against a West Coast team that's got Oscar Allen, Josh Kennedy, Jack Darling, uh, Jake Waterman all uh, playing down forward. Yeah, we saw the Bulldogs grind out a win against West Coast last week. I don't think that St. Kilda can grind out a win against the Eagles. And the reason why I think that they're going to struggle in this game, and if I had to pick, I would pick the Eagles, is because, again, we've seen at times St. Kilda, when they come up against teams that are really well-structured defensively, they struggle to kick those goals. We know they're kind of one-dimensional one dimensional going forward. They get their goals at the back. They like to play free-flowing footy. West Coast are kind of the opposite of that, and they do play a kind of similar style to the way the Cats play, and they like to hold the ball. They like to go with short kicks. They like to control the tempo a little bit, so I think that's going to be difficult for St. Kilda, and they can't allow West Coast to get away with what Geelong did in that game. Their pressure wasn't up. So the reason or or the way that you stop West Coast from controlling this footy is extreme pressure. Now, if they bring that, they'll give themselves a chance, but if they allow West Coast to control the footy, I think they're going to be in big trouble. And I, I look at the the back six for the Eagles, and even though uh, they do lose a couple of, uh, have, have lost a couple of important players, I still look at Schofield, Barras, Hearn, McGovern, Shepard, uh, and Liam Duggan's the other one down there who's had a pretty damn good season as well. These guys are just so organized. So the question for me is, can St. Kilda bring that pressure to unsettle West Coast and get them disorganized? Because if they don't, I'm, I'm just not sure how they're going to kick a score. Yeah, it is hard to disorganize that that back six. And you, you mentioned Duggan there. I think he's been so important yeah. within this season. But look, then you, you have those other names, Hearn, McGovern, Barash, Shepard, um, who have been so good as well. And 
you know, we've talked so much about St. Kilda getting, they're not cheapies because they're all worth six points, but those ones out the back and having shots of goal from five meters out, and if they don't do that, what else are they going to do? You just don't imagine West Coast is going to allow huge amounts of those goals to go through. Um, but yeah, I, I I do think that West Coast probably wins this one, but again, I think it's a lot closer than what I would have said a month ago. That, that, I mean, that makes some sense to me. I mean, clearly the the midfield is where you look at West Coast and they look vulnerable. But I, I like the fact that they get Nat, Nick Nat back. I yep. think that hurt them big time last week. In fact, I mean, they probably. I mean, even you can admit they probably win if Nick Nat plays in such a close game. He would have got them the clearances that they needed to get over the line in those those critical stages. But they still got Tim Kelly uh, and Andrew Gaff in there. You know, like they've still still got some big names. So certainly. Uh, they're a bit young down the bottom end. There's not a lot of experience with some of those names. But again, I, I look at the midfield with Nick Nat, Kelly, Gaff. I look at the structured back line. I look forward and they've still got Darling, Kennedy, Liam Ryan. I, I just think that they are a team that can cover some of those holes. Now, will they be able to do that in, in, in the finals, in a prelim final, if they don't have those guys? Maybe not. That's where it changes. But the, the challenge is to, to St. Kilda for mine. I mean, they need to be one of these big teams. This is a game they must win. I think they've certainly been helped by some of the other results around the league that makes them feel a little more comfortable that they might be able to slip in the eight. But uh, the pressure's on. The pressure's on. This is gonna. This should be a fun one. Yeah, look, really looking forward to this one and seeing exactly yeah, how this plays out because it obviously has impacts on my team, but it has impacts right around the league as well and the, the fate of yeah, Richmond, Geelong. Well, Geelong's probably safe now, but yeah, Richmond especially, uh, Melbourne, the Bulldogs, the Giants, the Magpies. Uh, maybe Carlton, if we want to go that far down. Um, there's uh, some big implications here. So really, really big pressure finals-type game with heaps on the line for both teams. So everybody should be tuning into this one and seeing how it goes down. Kane, I reckon that'll do us for today on Locked On AFL. Thank you again for another insightful episode. I'll catch you tomorrow to wrap up the week. Guys, subscribe Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on Spotify. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and I'll, today I'll leave you with a shout-out to Lindsay Gilby.